seated. I told the worship team, by the way, we're going to Exodus chapter 12, that um, if we weren't raptured by the third song, they had failed tonight. But I'm glad that they finished the set. No pressure on that. But you never know, we're always fishing for that last one before we hear that trump. I'll tell you, I am. Just a short um, recap, because we stopped in the middle of the chapter uh, there, and we'll pick things up in Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. And I don't want to go into any kind of an extensive recap related to things. Uh, if you weren't here last week, you can just uh, get the notes from the four who were. And uh, so it was a life-changing night last week. The four of you, would you just say amen to that, really? And that, okay. Yeah, it sounds like a lot more, but really it was pretty... But anyway, as, as we uh, pick things up here in, in uh, verse 21 of, of chapter 12, God has uh, warned Moses and the children of Israel of a, uh, a plague, a final plague, a tenth plague that was going to be poured out upon the land of Egypt in order to secure their release for God's eternal plan, a plan that reaches right into this world that Egypt was hindering, God had said that they would be in the land of Egypt for 400 years, then be released and all. So Pharaoh finds himself with Egypt trying to rise up and prove uh, God's word wrong. He's going to make a liar out of him or make him break one of his promises, which not only will he not do, he cannot do. God cannot lie, the Bible teaches. And uh, so he's on the wrong side of God's word, and, he, and, he's, and, and the nation of Egypt is in uh, in a dangerous place because of it, going to take a tenth plague in order to secure their release, the death of the firstborn of all animals and uh, of all uh, men throughout all of Egypt. And God declared to Moses that there would be one place of salvation from the judgment that was going to come on Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world, the unredeemed world. Uh, in, in the Bible and that salvation was found in the death of a lamb and its blood applied to a household in the form of it being uh, applied to the doorpost and the lentil of the house in the shape of a cross and all of it is a picture of Jesus as Paul brings out in his uh, first letter to the church at, at Corinth it's a, a picture of Jesus who is our Passover lamb he is the salvation uh, for God's judgment to pass over so it is not that we are not due judgment for our sin any more than anyone else but the blood of Jesus through faith has been applied to our life that allows God to pass over and and refuse uh, fail to to administer a, a judgment upon our lives uh, and remain just in doing so because Jesus bore that judgment for us <clears throat> excuse me on the cross so he's laid all of these things out and then Moses called for all of the elders of Israel and said to them pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb so it's not enough here's Moses he's been informed of God's way of salvation in the light of this judgment that's going to come upon Egypt. Not enough just to know that. Now the children of Israel have to do something with that information. And, uh, and so here's the, uh, Moses passes all of the information on to the children of Israel. And as we're going to see, uh, they are very quick to obey it. He said, you shall take a bunch of hyssop. Interesting enough, and the whole imagery, all of this is an image of Jesus' death upon the cross, the lamb dying, uh, the blood being applied and all in the shape of a cross. And uh, hyssop, uh, the plant hyssop makes its appearance at the crucifixion of Jesus as the sponge is uh, filled with kind of that wine and all in his thirst and then raised up to him on the cross in order to supply him uh, with a drink. Uh, on, on the cross, a drink that he, he refuses. So you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, strike the lintel and the two doorposts uh, with the blood, again the top of the doorpost, the two sides in the cross, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So your home covered in the blood, that is the uh, the place of salvation. They were not to move out from under that protection as long as there was judgment hanging uh, over Egypt. And it's a picture of us abiding in Christ and our salvation 
As long as there is a judgment hanging over this world, and there is one, there's a great judgment to come upon this world, uh, we are not to roam away from our salvation and back out into a world that's set aside for judgment. We are to stay in that salvation, continue to abide uh, in Christ. For the Lord will pass through, the, through uh, to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood, not enough to know about uh, the way of salvation, the sacrifice of the Lamb, and all of these things, but... It needs to be applied to our lives. Picture again of putting our faith in Jesus. Not enough to have been witnessed to ten times in our life and know the way to be saved and, and uh, have a technical knowledge of all those things. There has to come a point in time in our life where we, we take and apply that, uh, that sacrifice of Jesus to our own lives by faith. So when He sees the blood on the lentil and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. That's where we get the Passover from, the judgment passing over that household, and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. So Moses tells them that this uh, Passover ordinance is to become a part of, of their uh, kind of uh, religious heritage and, and uh, um, how shall we say, um, acknowledging it in this great event in their history. Uh, that's something that they would acknowledge forever. And it will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you just as He promised, that you shall keep his service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? As if you're celebrating the Passover service in the land of Canaan, that you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. And so uh, it was a, God is always concerned about the next generation. The old saying about the body of Christ is that the church or Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. So this is a way as they would, uh, not everyone in, in the history of God's people uh, experienced that per Passover firsthand, but he wanted everyone to kind of feel like they had. They wanted it to be a part of their heart, their mind, their soul, their strength. And so he sets up this this kind of an, an ordinance. It was never to be forgotten. And uh, and of course for us, as we partake of the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, a constant reminder to us of our salvation, that He delivered us out of Egypt into a wonderful salvation, but a reminder of the tremendous price that was paid in Jesus' body and in His blood uh, being shed for us in order to be uh, forgiven. Now, the response of the people is just wonderful. So the people bowed their heads and, and worshipped. They were just so humbled by the fact that God has come again. Nobody knew how many judgments there it would require to secure their release. So they finally hear, this is the one, the tenth one, and this is going to, you know, get you out of, of Egypt and, and all of this. And, and they're so grateful. I mean, all their long years of slavery and bondage, it's all going to come to an end. They're humbled by God's concern for them, and, and they just... Uh, worship him and not only did they worship him but then the children of Israel went away and did so not enough to know you got to do this so they obeyed just as the Lord had commanded Moses what if they had viewed all of this as kind of a suggestion you know no it was a command and they viewed it as a command and uh, I, I, you know sometimes I'll be watching something on the television some Christian thing that they're doing you know Larry King will have someone on or something like that and I know I shouldn't it aggravates me sometimes but and then there's some people that get on there and hit home runs sometimes it really is uh, even surprising a little bit how faithful people can be to the Lord and all that. But I never like God's Word in those places where someone will talk about a commandment of God as a principle. Say, you know, this is, this is one of the principles God that has given us. Don't call it a principle. That, that's got too much optional written on it. 
If it's a command, say that it's a command. At least when you talk with me, do that. If you're going to be on TV and I'm watching, call it a command, okay? A little egocentric here. Well, the whole world revolves around me, so take me into consideration, really, in all decisions that you make in life. But anyway, but that's the, you know, we use these weaselly words, and, and we shouldn't. Sorry to call people weasels. It's so early in the sermon. But anyway, um, they, they didn't, and I'm not calling other people that. I'm just saying that we shouldn't do that. And I I certainly want to do that and so how's that the soft shoe to get out of that but they did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron so they did did commanded did that's a safe place that's the safe place related to God's Word I mean God isn't wasting his breath or his time by giving us commandments that are unnecessary or excessive or all these kinds of things when when he says listen do this this is a commandment he's to be taken seriously and he is always to be taken seriously and never more seriously than when he's talking about our salvation. There is a judgment that is coming on this world. And there is a way of salvation to escape it. And God is serious when he talks about judgment coming. Because it means that the most incredibly merciful, loving, yet righteous and holy God has been pushed to that place by the creation. But, but the, it, he is to be taken very seriously when he speaks to us about salvation. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all of the firstborn of the livestock. So once again, God is not kidding when he warns that a judgment is coming. Important to heed his word. Very important. If you have not made Jesus your Savior and your Lord tonight, that you do that tonight. God's judgment is coming. There's a one place of protection. And so Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. God had warned them over and over and over and over and over again. And, uh, and here, now they get a chance to cry. They had introduced weeping uh, over death and, and disease and hunger and uh, bondage and cruelty. The children of Israel hadn't even blinked at it for generations among them and now they get to understand what it is uh, to cry over their firstborn in the same way that God was weeping and heartbroken over the children of Israel who he claimed to be his firstborn in, in the sense of the preeminent uh, people in the world at that time his heart was attached to them in a very very special way and so then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron by night and uh, uh, and he and said, Rise, go out among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Now there's no more ifs, ands, or buts about it. No more, you, the men can go, but the women can't go. The men and women can go, but the kids can't go. The men and women and children can go, but the livestock can't go. There's no more of that stuff. It's just the door is wide open. You guys can uh, go ahead and, and uh, uh, head on, on out. It is his invitation take your flocks your herds and as you have said and be gone and bless me also so he realizes that the God of the children of Israel is a God that's way off the graph powerful compared to his little gods uh, and they worship these zillions of gods almost it seemed and and all of them put together couldn't withstand the greatness of of the God of the Bible and so he comes in and says you know bless me also but he's just kind of in a mood at the moment uh, because of, of what he's in the middle of. He wants to, uh, with his, um, one, one part of him gets it, that I need to be on the right side of this God. But we're going to see in just a couple of minutes that he's, uh, that's not going to hold uh, long for him. He's going to change his, his mind almost immediately. And, uh, and then the Egyptians urged the people, so not just Pharaoh, but the common Egyptians, urged the people uh, that they might send them out of the land for haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. They said, leave, go. <laughs> They're afraid that the next judgment is going to hit number 11, which God knew wouldn't be required, and that all of the Egyptians uh, would be dead. And so the people took their dough before it was leavened, the Jews, 
and uh, having their kneading bowls bound up on their, in their clothes, on their shoulders. So they're, they're packed up and ready to go as God had told them to be. And now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. And so... Um, Just as God had told them to do, I don't want you to leave empty-handed. They've gotten slave labor out of you for 400 years, probably not for the whole 400 years, but a good portion of it. And uh, you're due back wages and all. Just ask them for wealth as you leave, and they will give you wealth. And I want you to, I want you, I want this to be right. I want that side of things to be right and that way too. And then you can head out. And as uh, we mentioned last week, as we'll see a little bit later in the in the uh, in the Bible, that all of this wealth uh, ends up, a, a good portion of it anyway, ends up being used for the building of the tabernacle, uh, a place to worship the Lord uh, there um, in the wilderness. And so God allows them to be plundered, uh, so to speak, uh, toward toward that end. And then the children of Israel, uh, they journeyed uh, from Ramses to Sokoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. This is where we understand the size of this um, uh, you know, group that's heading out of Egypt, 600,000 men, um, and, and usually it's adult men that that are uh, numbered in the Bible over the age of 20, uh, that kind of a thing. Then you add the wives in, you add in the children, and you see that you t- this looks to be about a number <clears throat> of about uh, maybe two to three million people that are heading out of Egypt. A mixed multitude went up with them also. Those folks are trouble. Big, big trouble. The mixed multitude, we'll be reading about them many times in the rest of this uh, uh, particular chapter in in, uh, Jewish history. When the doors flung wide open for the children of Israel to escape from that bondage, you can imagine there were slaves from all over the world in Egypt, and they looked at them and said, Anybody else see the jail cell wide open? Let's get out of here. But they didn't care about God. They didn't care about uh, the Jews. They didn't care about God's plan of salvation. didn't care about any of those things. They just cared about getting out. And uh, so they're going to they're gonna go out with the children of Israel. But because they have no loyalty to God, they're going to whine and complain and snivel as if the children of Israel needed any help in that vein. Uh, but they're going to they're going to lead them into a lot of complaining against God and uh, and 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 coming under their influence. They're going to get them into trouble. And so this mixed multitude, the mixed multitude is a group of people. They're not saved, but they love to be around the action. What's happening? What's happening in town? You know, kind of a deal. And wow, this looks like something exciting. People are leaving Egypt, and let's see where this goes and all. But. Uh, but when they get in with God's people, because of their carnality, they always lead them into trouble. So the mixed multitude went up uh, with them also, and flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough, which they had brought out of Egypt, uh, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor ha- uh, had they prepared provisions for themselves, so their food as they went out was to eat this unleavened bread that they had uh, baked and, and prepared before they they left. And now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass at the end of 430 years on the that very same day it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord uh, went out from the land of Egypt. And so God makes a big point here that they left the land of Egypt at the very time that he said that they would leave the land of Egypt. In other words, uh, God never forgot them. God never forgot his promises. And when the time came to fulfill that promise, he kept it. He is faithful to all of his promises in in our lives. And he was to them, and, and he is to us. And it was a night of solemn observance 
to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Israel, uh, of Egypt, rather. So you've got these two to three million people, and they're heading out like an army. It's not like a riot. Run for your lives before Pharaoh changes his mind. You know, and they're all trampling everyone or something like that. Uh, enough about airports. But anyway, uh, it's a very ordered. They're like at military ranks and, and heading out in the military movements or ordered movements and all. God does things decently in, in order, and they're heading out, and there's just this very, uh, they're, they're quiet. Uh, nobody's, you know, hip hip hooraying or anything like that audibly or any all. There's just this solemn uh, 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 observance that is going on. There's just the idea. We're walking out of Egypt. We're walking out of Egypt. Can you believe it? We're getting out of here. And, and I just, they're so in awe of God's deliverance of them from, from Egypt. I hope we think of our salvation that way from the world. You're, can you believe it? We got out of there. You know, our, our Egypt. So that solemn observance, beautiful, I think. And that, this is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for the children of Israel throughout their generations. They would never forget it. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. And so now he begins to give them some very specific instruction regarding the Passover. No foreigner was to eat it. And remember, they got this mixed multitude that's in there, people from all over the world, but they don't know God. They don't care about God. And, uh, and so later on it's going to apply to uh, uh, non-Jews who were working and, and living in uh, the nation of Israel but had no concern for the worship of the God of the Jews, the God uh, of the Bible. They were not to partake of the Passover. Uh, they did not have a covenant relationship with God. They had not put their faith or commitment into God. And so the Passover was not to be some kind of just a ritual. It was not to devolve into that. It was to be celebrated by people who had a relationship with God and were thankful to be delivered from, from Egypt. In the same way that the Lord's Supper, water baptism, the ordinances uh, for us in the New Testament, shouldn't be partaken of by those that do not have a, a covenant relationship uh, with God through, through Jesus. It's not a ritual. It, it actually uh, means something. He goes on to say that... Um, but, verse 44, every man's servant who is bought from money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat. And so, if they buy a servant, the servant wants to worship, wanted to worship the God of the Jews and uh, was willing to be circumcised and, and all as an expression of his faith in the Lord, then he could eat uh, of the Passover. So Gentiles weren't excluded uh, from partaking of of the Passover just because they were they were Gentiles a Gentile who wanted a relationship with the God of the Jews even in the, uh, under the old covenant uh, they could agree to be uh, 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 to be uh, circumcised as an expression of their faith in God and then they could eat the Passover he said that a sojourner someone that's just traveling through or a hired servant they shouldn't eat it for the same reason as, as the foreigner and in one house it shall be eaten you shall not carry any of the flesh outside of the house Passover was to be eaten in a house nor shall you break any of its bones a bone was not to be broken of, of the Passover lamb very interesting that Jesus on the cross not one bone was broken you could not recognize him for who he was as a human being hardly recognize him as a man on the cross so much blood so much abuse, not only from the cross, but the beatings prior to the cross, all of those things. I mean, you would just look at that and think, they, they so thrashed him in all that surely one of his bones would be broken. And yet it wasn't, because he's the Passover lamb, and no bone was to be broken. And then remember when the soldiers came later, and when you were on the cross, uh, it was basically death by suffocation. Where, where sooner or later you would just drop down under the weight of the nails here 
that were there and you would, you would be unable to pull yourself up to pull another breath in. Sooner or later you would lose the strength to do that and then you would basically suffocate on the cross. And they came uh, to break the bones in Jesus, uh, his legs and the two thieves that were, were crucified on either side of him so they would be unable to push against their legs and it would just hasten the process so they wouldn't remain on the cross in, into the holy day. And they came to Jesus, they got the mallet, big old mallet they'd bring, just smash the shin bones to smithereens. And uh, they came to Jesus, saw that he was already dead and they moved on their way. All of it just a picture of him, again, as, as the Passover uh, lamb, fulfillment of this. And all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall uh, be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Same thing for everyone. No circumcision, no participating in the feast of Passover. And thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So we've got another did command, did there in the passage, uh, obeying everything the Lord is saying. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, uh, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And so in chapter 13, God establishes two memorials for the children of Israel, for them to remember this great event in their history. And, uh, and because why does he establish memorials? Because we're great forgetters. This noggin is a great forgettery on things. So God establishes memorial, not so that they will ever become ritual, but that they would always remember, remind us of things that God knows that we need to be reminded of. He never wanted them to forget this event. And he does two things. Number one, he establishes the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is, which is tied to it, which we'll get to in just a moment. The second thing that he did that was more a part of their daily life, the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, an annual event. But just so they never forgot about the fact that he had delivered them out of Egypt through the death of the firstborn in uh, in Egypt and all, every time they had a, a newborn, uh, a child, the first male that would, uh, there in the words of, of verse 2, open the womb, they would initiate the womb in, in birth uh, for the woman or the first animal that would be born uh, of one of their animals would initiate that womb. That, uh, in, that child or that animal was to be consecrated uh, to the Lord. And uh, so that every time they did that, they would remember the, the great deliverance that God, uh, you know, exercised in order to bring them out. Um, so we'll get into that in, in just a little bit more. But that's what he's, that's what he's talking about in, in all of this. The firstborn represented something that belonged to him in, in kind of a special way. Now later in, in, uh, in the Pentateuch here, the first five books of the Bible, uh, we're going to see that God is going to substitute the Levites uh, for the firstborn as being a, a group of people dedicated specially to him and his service and that people would then uh, redeem their children uh, by virtue of, of five shekels for a sum of money. And even ultimately they would do that with uh, the unclean animals like the donkeys, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So much to talk about in just a moment. Isn't, well, let's get into it, shall we? And then the Lord said to the people, remember, there's your remembrance, there's your memorial word, remember this day, this is the purpose of it, never forget about it. Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month of Abib, which is the first month of of the Jewish religious calendar. I think it's the, worth, uh, the month we know it more uh, commonly as Nisan, uh, also known as Datsun in the older manuscripts. That's really just terrible, isn't it, really? 
Because so, only a person over 50 can really get that. But I really liked it. And uh, so I thought it was fine. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat uh, unleavened bread. And remember there would be the Passover feast. That was one day. It was then to be followed by seven days of the feast of, of unleavened bread where all leavened bread would be removed from their households uh, because when they uh, fled from Egypt they fled with unleavened bread and that's what they ate. So it was reminding them uh, very specifically uh, of the Exodus. And uh, so, uh, let me read the next verse on it, and then we'll uh, share something else. So, unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in your quarters. It was to be removed from their households. Now again... As we've mentioned before, it's a beautiful, it, those two feasts, and they both kind of ended up merging together, where when people talk about, uh, even today, they talk about the Passover. Very often they're talking about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, both of them together, because the imagery is so beautiful. The Passover represented the deliverance from Egypt, our deliverance from the world, the moment of our salvation. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the key thing to that was the removal of all leaven from the household uh, on an annual basis. It was to be removed. In the Bible, leaven is a picture of sin. So uh, you have this, um, this uh, beautiful picture of God saving us. And, and, you know, uh, out of unholiness, saving us into a holy life through the Passover. But then we have a responsibility in all of that of maintaining the, uh, a holiness in our life. In other words, we're to prize holiness. We're to prize the deliverance out of Egypt into a new life uh, so much that we're willing to protect the newness of our life and the holiness of our new life. Wouldn't be a bad thing, would it? I'm not advocating it as, as setting up something formal related to it, but it certainly wouldn't be a bad thing uh, for any of us as Christians to, at least on an annual basis, which is what the idea was for the children of Israel, to go through the whole house and get rid of anything that's come into the house in the last year that represents leaven. And let's start fresh again, get rid of all that junk, reconsecrate to holiness, reappreciate holiness, reappreciate, you know, the fact that God has delivered us from all that junk, get rid of it and, and all, uh, don't sell it on eBay, burn it, and, uh, and then move on forward. It's a beautiful reference point, and it and it's the kind of thing that a person who appreciates deliverance, appreciates holiness, would, would appreciate uh, doing. And that's what it was for. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. So again, these feasts were to be done to communicate to them, uh, to the next generations, the great uh, heritage that they had in the Lord. And it shall be a sign to you on your hand. Uh, as a memorial, and there you have that remembrance memorial word, between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of uh, Egypt. And so, again, God's concerned to pass these things on to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation. Don't worry about your children being too steeped or founded in the things of the Lord. I hear that every once in a while, and I, I don't view it as a particular concern that I, I think, or a particular thing that anyone that I know of ought to be terribly concerned about. Oh boy, you know, I don't want to force them to come to church, and I don't want to be building the, these things and talking about the Lord all the time and having our house be a certain way, and I don't want to turn them off to the Lord later on. I don't think that's a danger we have. God calls us to, to take these things that He has done in our lives, the history, that our ch Christian history, that our children are born into, 
and then to, to take and impart that into their life. Never, ever, ever as a Christian. Don't ever as a Christian raise your children with less of a spiritual foundation than your parents gave you. Now, if you came from nothing, then you, you start the whole cycle there. But never, ever give your children less than someone gave you. God will come alongside it. He'll say yea and amen to these things. They may, some of them, hate certain things for a certain block of their life. But listen, they're not always going to be the age they are. And it's funny how once we get into adult life, once we start to hit the hard things in life and all, then we start to say, now I get it. Now I'm glad that that foundation is built into my life. So just as it's not appreciated at the moment, doesn't mean that we cease to lay that foundation uh, in their lives. God wants us, not to only us as parents, to grow in our relationship with the Lord, but that the children are brought along uh, in, in that same growth and relationship also. And you therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And so those two feasts will always remind them of their deliverance uh, from the land of, of Egypt. They were to take, and as he says there in, in uh, verse 9, it was to be a memorial between their eyes and then uh, 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 as a sign on your hand and as a moral, memorial between your eyes. And you go to, for instance, you go to Israel today or any major city where you have a large population of Orthodox Jews and you'll see sometimes they have the, what are called the phylacteries. It's a little box and they've got a bunch of ties and they'll tie it around their hand. It's a little box and it's got the scriptures in it. And it's kind of a literal uh, handling of this. Sometimes uh, even interesting on planes or lots of different places you can be. And they'll have it wrapped around their head and the phylactery will be right there like a little box on their forehead. And they're kind of literally doing what it, what it says here. To do. Sometimes you'll see the phylactery with the laces all down here and they aren't putting it on their hand. They'll put it up here higher on their arm and because it's closer to their heart and that's what they're kind of communicating. But more than that, it's, what God is doing here and saying this is, is He's not necessarily calling for an act a physical kind of doing this as much as saying uh, related to your, you know, your hands into in your forehead or to your mind. He's saying, let all of your doing in life, let all of your thinking in life be completely dominated from this day forward by the great deliverance that God has accomplished in your life in saving you and bringing you out of Egypt. Let that, don't just be saved, fire insurance, on your way to heaven, but now let that dominate who you are, what you are, what you do, how you think, the kind of influence that you are in the world, and that's what he's calling them uh, to be. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb that is the firstborn that comes from an animal which you have the males shall be the Lord's and so firstborn of any any female animal that male uh, belong to the Lord but the firstborn of a donkey you shall not redeem you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And, uh, and all the firstborn of men among your sons, you shall redeem. Now, the, the, uh, so a person had, uh, I mean, what, does God hate donkeys or what? The, the thing with a donkey is a donkey was an unclean animal. And, uh, and so it could not be sacrificed. So if you had a, uh, a, a lamb that initiated the womb, firstborn uh, lamb came out, that was a clean animal to sacrifice. That could be offered to God in sacrifice. But when a donkey was born, there was nothing you could do with it. You couldn't sacrifice it to God. And uh, because God didn't want it as a sacrifice. So you could redeem it and say, all right, I want this donkey. I have a use for a donkey and I'll redeem it through the sacrifice of another lamb. And that's the way that you would do it. If you didn't want the donkey and you said, I, I'm not interested uh, in it. I want to hold on to the lambs and all of that kind of thing. You, you couldn't kill the donkey by the shedding of its blood again because it's not to be sacrificed. And so it was to be killed by the, the breaking uh, of, of the neck. And then 
Um, all, again, at the end of verse 13, all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. No killing them. You want to kill them later, uh, sometimes, but uh, not right there at the beginning. So th- there was no, obviously, sacrificing of, of children, that kind of thing. They were always redeemed then uh, by an animal. And, uh, and then later on in the course of their history, God again is going to call the Levites to take this position of that special place uh, for service to him. And, uh, and then everyone will simply redeem their firstborn sons with, with the five shekels to be paid uh, into the temple. So this is, but this is how in their wandering God wanted this done. And so it shall be when your son asks you in time to come saying, uh, what's this? What's up with this whole sacrifice and the firstborn and then the and the whole thing? And what what you doing there, Dad? And and again, the concern for the next generation. And then you will be able to. You shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. We're able to say, Dad, what's up with that? Why do we do that? And then we're able to tell them why we do what we do, and in part spiritual heritage into their life. I hope our children know our testimony, how we came to know the Lord. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, as the explanation continues to the child, that the Lord killed all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. And therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And it shall be a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, remember the children of Israel. got two or three million of them heading out. They knew they were uh, believers in God. They were believers in the God of the Bible. They knew that they came from a heritage, a godly heritage. They were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that there was a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in the time that they were in Egypt, there was no kind of intimate relationship with God. There was a formal kind of a relationship with Him, a knowledge of Him, a knowledge that they were a special people in the world. But no, you know, hands-on, intimate kind of, of a relationship uh, with him. So here they're coming out of Egypt. God's going to wants to take them into the promised uh, land. And as they're coming out of Egypt, I mean, you got Egypt right here. There we go. I forgot that. So you got Egypt right here and Sinai Peninsula and all. All you'd have to do is just head up northeast right into Canaan, right up here. That's all, that's all it was going to take. God looked at that and said, that's the shortest route, but I can't take them there right now. And he takes them further down into the wilderness. And the purpose behind all of it is to develop a relationship with them. To, for him, for them to get to know him, his trustworthiness, and, and all of these kinds of things. Additionally, he knew that if they headed up in that kind of northeasterly uh, direction, that that was the main kind of movement between Canaan and Egypt of uh, Egyptian troop troops. So if they headed up onto that main kind of a road up and down, they would immediately run into Egyptian military. There would be immediately uh, a battle of, of some kind. And that the, he, God knew that the children of Israel were not up to that battle in this time in their history. They are a bunch of slaves that have been just released from their slavery. They are not yet an army. They are not yet used to that. If they had gone into that and, and suffered a defeat immediately, I mean, their confidence would have been, uh, you know, completely shot. And, and uh, so they weren't up to it. So God, in his wisdom, just says, all right, they don't have a relationship with me. They're not properly prepared for that kind of a confrontation right now. And so I'm going to take them and, and move them out into the wilderness. We're going to grow in our relationship a little bit, and then I'll bring them into some, uh, some harder things. So it had just been too much uh, for their young faith. 
not ready to fight those wars just yet. And so God, because he's wise and because he's loving, he does not put them or us into something that we haven't been prepared to be successful in. And that's, that's what happens. God will never, ever put us in something that he has not properly prepared us to be successful in. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you except it's common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And he knows that. He knows us very intimately. Knows what we can handle, what we can't handle. And I typically think I can handle a lot more than I can handle a lot of times on things. God knows better, different things. Sometimes we can wonder why we're not married yet. Why we didn't get that promotion. Why this particular door to ministry hasn't opened up to me, you know, by this point in time yet. Not always, I don't want to say always, but sometimes it can be that he knows we're not ready for it yet. We think we're ready for it yet. We think we're ready to be successful in that that particular uh, adventure and all. But he looks at us and he knows we're not ready for it uh, yet. He knows we will be. He knows one day he will introduce us into that environment. But at the moment, he knows better than to put us in that. Sometimes the nearest way, the easiest way, it's not the best way. It's not the right way. God doesn't make judgments by, okay, we just shoot over here. And have you ever noticed God's not in a big hurry? Doesn't that bug you about him? Man, I'm always in such a hurry on, on stuff. I mean, in a good way. Always in a holy way. He is so patient. He's just, doesn't, doesn't he know? I, I don't know how long I'm going to live. He's got to get on with these things. On, on stuff and, and all. And he just, he's just, obviously he's working off a completely different set of instructions that, than, than I do in my, uh, in, in, the, in the natural on things. And uh, so he's very, very patient on things. And I'll tell you, I think it's great here. We can really rest in that knowledge. Just to rest in the knowledge that he chooses our trials very, very carefully very carefully, especially early in our Christian life. And they're very early in the growth in their personal relationship with Him. And that's a thing just to rest in. Nobody wants you in God's will more than He wants you to be in His will. That's a place to rest. Oh boy, i got to, you know, and, I, and this and the whole thing, and, and I'm wondering if I'm missing God's will. If I'm willing to be in His will, He's going to get me there. And he loves me enough to do that. He's there to rest in in those times. So they weren't up to this just yet. And so God's not going to put them into the middle of that. And so God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Again, God's a God of decency and in order. And Moses took the bones of Joseph. 350 years. Joseph died 350 years earlier. And remember what he said? You guys are getting out of here. God said you're going to get out of here. You're going to get out of here. And when you get out of here, take my bones. I want my bones to be buried in the promised land where God's, all the action is going to take place on, on things. So he made him promise that. And so Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under the solemn oath, saying, Surely, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Isn't that something? The Bible talks about uh, commit these things to faithful men. Now, whoever got that order from Joseph... You're going to get out of here, and I'm telling you, and it's going to be after I'm long gone and flesh has rotted off of my bones. But you're going to go to Canaan. And when you go, take my bones. Somebody took out their little notepad, wrote that down, made sure it got done. that's 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 a good person to turn something over to. We have so many men and women in this ministry you can just take and give something to them, and they say, I got it, and it's done. It's a beautiful characteristic in a person. Somebody 
took that down, made sure that that happened. And so they took their journey from Sokoth and encamped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. So this is how God led them. They're out in the wilderness, very arid part of the world. And so how valuable would shade be to you during the day? Man, imagine uh, three million people showing up and there's like uh, two acacia wood trees. Get a little messy, wouldn't it? So he takes, and God, he loves his people. So during the day, he was just this, this cloud of, of shade to them during the day. And at night, he was a pillar of fire to them, lighting their way. And, and it was a beautiful way of God not only demonstrating his presence with them. They'd look and they say, God's still with us. And, but it was a way of leading the people in, in that way. So when the cloud moved someplace, they packed up and they moved. When the pillar of fire moved, and they packed up and they moved. When it stayed, they stayed. So, so a lot of us would get up in the morning maybe and we check what the weather's going to be. Uh, for the children of Israel, they'd wake up and look out and say, is he moving or is he staying? That's what, that's what the day's going to hold for us. It was God's way of leading them, and it was God's way of communicating to them that He is present in their lives. And sometimes we can look at things. When, do you ever look at this particular passage and go, Man, I wish I had that kind of clarity with God's leading. Can we kind of go back to that just a little bit, you know? And uh, I spent about half my time wondering, now was that you, God, or not? Or did that, and, and then the, and the, you know, and the whole thing in pi r squared, and I worked this thing in, and then, and then, no, I don't think it was. They had tremendous clarity, but we do have truly uh, a much better uh, advantage that we have in this covenant, of course, in that this the Holy Spirit has come into our lives, always speaking to us of the presence of God in our lives, and then that leading of the Holy Spirit in as personal a way as it can possibly happen. See, the leading of, you know, two to three million people, it's just like this gigantic, you know, in mass kind of thing. I don't know how he would say, listen, everybody go, but I want you to be over. But that's what he can do in the whole, with the Holy Spirit in our lives today. Take all of these gazillions of people, and remind us every day all over the world, all the different places that we're in the world, to remind us I'm present in your life, I'm active in your life, and then to lead us individually. How much more efficient is that for the purpose that we're in this world for? And that is to be used by him to uh, you know, advance his kingdom. And so we do have the superior thing, though sometimes this can look tempting uh, once in a while. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And so for the whole time that they wandered in the wilderness, God led them in this way. He only intended them to be in the wilderness for a very short period of time before he bring, brought them into the promised land. They're going to end up being in the wilderness for 40 years. And that's another story on its own. And we'll get to that in about 16 years. It's just about four chapters away. Just kidding. That's out there a little ways on things. And uh, so, but God was faithful, even in, in the midst of all of it, to continue to lead them and, and bless them in this way. Well, we'll stop there tonight. And uh, we'll pick it up in one of the just most exciting events in the entirety of the whole uh, you know, Old Testament next to the Exodus itself uh, there in, in uh, Exodus chapter 14 and the crossing of the Red Sea. But we'll pick that up, Lord willing, next week. If the worship team would come forward. Look at that. We have a little time left over. They say miracles aren't for today.